0: Kind of a sobering topic, just to be quite honest with you. And first hour I preached it, and I'm, you know, sobered up and ready to preach it again. But it is a tough topic because we're talking about sin and really the enemy that's within each one of us. And we're talking about how to kill it. And I wanted to move on to a sort of a new question, a fresh question for this week. But I was nagged in my conscience after Sunday's message that, Even though I opened up the topic of killing sin or how do you mortify sin, how do you attack it, I opened that topic up and I talked about how God and, you know, how we work with God and we grow in grace and sanctification. I talked about the story of Lot and how he lingered at Sodom too long. and was was sort of trying to lay a warning out there to all of us about how sinful we can be and how much we can lose if we focus on the world. But I just have to be honest with you, I wasn't satisfied with last week's message, so it became a part two, and I want to talk about more clearly from Scripture, how do we attack and approach particular sins using this book. And frankly, there aren't many books or helps out there that talk about how to deal with sin specifically, how to kill it. There there just aren't. And you know that last week I began with a sort of a heartfelt email that was left anonymous, will remain anonymous, but it's from one of you. And, and again, she says, why do we keep doing the same sin? Is it really that we haven't repented of it, or is it a process? And in her email, she confesses, look, I'm dealing with worry, I'm dealing with envy, I'm dealing with jealousy, I'm dealing with these things, and that's just the beginning of the list. And I want to know, if I'm a new creature in Christ, why am I sort of plagued with these sins that are harassing me? And so I want to approach this topic again and look at some passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament to talk about killing sin. Not a lot of people talk about that these days. This, this is not a uh, politically correct sermon that's going to boost um, someone's self-esteem. What we're going to do instead is dive into the deep end of the pool and swim down to the bottom where the pressure is and stay there for a little while. Because we're going to talk about the enemy that's inside of us. I had to go to uh, a Puritan this week, I sort of live with this dead guy for a week, um, John Owen, who is a Puritan from the 1600s. And I found his book online, it's a PDF file, you can download it if you want to. And it's, uh, you know, 175 pages of, of hard sledding through, how do, you, how do you kill sin. It's called The Mortification of sin I'd heard of this book a couple pastors on staff here read the book this summer I didn't get to do that so this week I just drank deeply from this Puritan Oxford grad he was a nonconformist Puritan who was sort of going against the Church of England standing strong for the truth during the 1600s he was brought on staff under Oliver Cromwell as a sort of fighting Christian he was he was sort of working with him as a chaplain in the government But he didn't pull punches when we talk about sin. And I don't want to pull punches this morning, but I want to relate this to you from my heart to yours because I'm in the boat with you. I'm a sin fighter. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to fight against our sin. And I hope that this morning I can equip you with some tools to help you fight against sin. How to mortify our sin. You know, this week was was interesting, wasn't it? This week there was that shooting in Denver, and I was sort of up all week, you know, with my kids. I would mentioned earlier during the prayer time that my wife is gone. That means that, you know, I'm all hands on deck, and we've got, you know, six kids, and three of them are way young. And let's just say a lot of cereal has been spilt this week, and all our milk is gone. You know, it's one of those weeks where... You're just sort of swimming, you know, upstream with those kids and having a good time. It's been a special time for us as a family, but, you know, sort of an exhausting time. And I was up Friday night with Riley and we'd put all the kids down to bed and I just turned the computer on. I hadn't checked the news that day and saw what happened at Den- in Denver at that movie theater where a guy goes in, dressed in body armor, Throws the tear gas and begins to blow 12 people away, killing them dead, and then more injuring, and perhaps more have died. Some 48 others. Just a horrific scene. You know, I sort of was watching the different um, videos relating to what that would have been like and how horrible that was, and people personally testifying about, you know, wanting to escape but save family and step, stepping over the carnage of people that were slaughtered in that moment. And Riley, who's turning 13, you know, I sort of exposed her to some of this, and she's saying, Dad, I don't get it. You know, he's a medical student, you know, sort of had a future in front of him, and why did he do this? How could somebody like this do this? How, How could this happen? I don't get it. And I said, well, honey, I've been studying the doctrine of sin all week long, and I think I'm beginning to understand the depth of depravity that's inside each one of us. And even though it's hard to fully grasp and comprehend why someone would go that far in terms of their sin and their lust and their anger and rage, it's important for us to understand that this book is really the only source for us to understand a person's depravity or sinfulness. It gives us the window into where that comes from. It's not going to be because he was abused, ultimately. I mean, yeah, those have effects on people. I understand that. It's not going to be because of a personality disorder. It's not going to be because of a chemical imbalance. Ultimately, Jesus says if you have anger in your heart that leads to murder, that's it. I mean, at the base of it all, it's that we are born in sin and left unbridled and unchecked by God's grace. That sin can go that bad or worse. That's what we're dealing with. And if we were to be totally, brutally honest, we would just say, you know what? Those kinds of sin seeds live even in me. Even as a believer, even though we know from Romans chapter 6 that the old man... The sinful nature was crucified. That old man died. And that our flesh is mortally wounded and will ultimately be eradicated or taken from us when we go to glory. We still have to face the fact that we have an enemy within. Our hearts are like a haunted house that's filled with some demons. And we're fighting against our flesh that's waging war Against us. We've got to understand that that sin problem is real. Look, turn over to Romans chapter 8. Let me just introduce you to some passages that talk about this fight that we're supposed to wage against our flesh. Verse 12 of chapter 8, Romans 8, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So there is the flesh that's inside of us. This this remaining sin in our unredeemed humanness, our unredeemed physicality. There is this sort of fleshly spiritual realm that we are called and commanded to put to death. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. He begins chapter 3 talking about having a heavenly mindedness, but then he calls the Christian to action. Verse 5. Put to death. It's a command. It's mortify. Put to death. Kill, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry it's a whole list of things that we are called as christians to kill in our lives during our christian life galatians chapter 5 one final passage just to open this up galatians Galatians chapter 5 speaks of the difference between living by the flesh and living by the spirit look at verse 16 but i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do got a war going on inside of us the Holy Spirit lives in each believer Romans chapter 6 Verse 12 talks about how the old man has died, has been crucified. It says, was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we're no longer enslaved to sin as believers. We're not under the slaveship of sin. It's not bread, It's not that we're not convicted of our sin, but at the same time, if we were brutally honest and just sort of wide open with each other, we would have to admit that there is a warfare going on. There are times in our lives where it's as if we are coming out of our skin in an out-of-body experience, watching ourselves sin and going, I don't believe the person that I'm observing right now. Is that really me? Is my sin really that bad right now? I thought I, thought I did away with that, and yet it's still there. I'm still going in that direction sometimes and I'm horrified by it we all have that experience that's what the Bible says we have going on in us look at Romans 7 this is Paul's testimony as a believer there are many souped-up theologians who want to talk talk the passage out of saying that Paul's a believer here they want to say he can't be a believer but he is a believer Look at verse 22. He says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's a believer. But, verse 23, see in my members or in his life, he sees another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It's a real fight. It's a real issue. And I want to try to hit it and approach it. Sort of from the main principles that I found from this PDF file that I downloaded this week by John Owen. He helped me out a lot. Let's start with a few ideas, a few definitions. First of all, who is this for? Who is supposed to kill their sin? Well, believers are. In Romans chapter 8, again, looking at verse 12, Paul says, So brothers, you're supposed to do this. Christians kill sin non-christians want to kill sin but they can't kill sin christians are the only ones who are equipped to kill sin we're the only ones who want to kill sin authentically a lot of people want to deal with their guilt or sort of drink their guilt away or ignore their guilt or make excuses for their guilt or say look everybody's guilty so nobody's guilty make philosophies against their guilt but true believers are supposed to attack their sin and deal with with the guilt of their sin, with the cross. We are brothers. He says brothers are supposed to do this. Only people who are alive spiritually can kill sin. You gotta be alive to kill. So that's who he's talking to. Next, what do we kill? Well, we're killing the flesh. We're killing this unredeemed humanity that we're dealing with, that we're struggling with until we go to glory. Paul calls it in Romans 7 the law of sin, and I actually got that. Um, I get this idea that I'm about to talk about from another book that I used uh, this week. I kind of wrote my sermon and read this book, or most of it, last night. It's called The Enemy Within. There's only one copy left. I snagged this off the shelf earlier this week. But anyway, um, we'll get more if you want it. He, This guy, Chris Lungard, he also read a lot of John Owen and wrote a very popularized book way to read it and understand it i really recommend this book great book but he talks about this law of sin that's in your members and he says look what paul's doing here is not talking about law like old testament law here he's talking about a law in terms of a principle or or like the law of nature, or like a law of gravity, you know, that what goes up must come down um, type of law. Just an axiomatic principle. In other words, there's just this truth about my experience and my existence that I'm wrestling with sin. It's like a gravitational pull in me that's pulling me away from righteousness, and it's there, and I've got to fight it to the death. The Christian is supposed to wrestle with their sin until they die why because verse 13 of chapter 8 if you kill your sin if you're putting your sin or your flesh to death then there is something that will be rewarded in your life you will have life you will live Paul says if you do it if you commit to fight then you're going to live if you get in the boxing ring and go the distance you're going to get a reward that's the point of Romans 8 He's inspiring the Christian to say, look, Christians are fighters. You just are. You're either a bad fighter who's getting the soup beat out of you, or you're fighting back, period. Christians fight. They enlisted. You 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 might not have known that you enlisted when you got saved, but you enlisted. You signed up, and you got to go, and you got to fight. You're going to be on the sidelines, sort of in your chariot, unwilling to roll out into battle if you're not a fighter, And if you're just kind of checked out of the fight, but as a believer, you're called to fight. I remember one of my favorite, you know, prize fights that I ever watched. My dad and I watched a prize fight one time. It was on sort of a a large screen, pipelined into an auditorium. It was... uh, um, Sugar Ray Leonard's one of his last fights against marvelous Marvin Hagler who remembers that or would admit yeah it was a good fight and what was good about that fight was Sugar Ray was making his sort of final debut as a prize fighter and he had his detached retinas that had been put back so what's he doing fighting and uh, and everybody loves Sugar Ray and Hagler um, which you know he was sort of this you know, uh, people liked him and respected him. People didn't love him. But anyway, so they, but he was the heavyweight champion of the world, like, or the middleweight champion of the world. So they're fighting and Sugar Ray's dancing around the ring and, and hitting him. And it was just that Sugar Ray Leonard would not give up through the whole thing. Hagler kept coming and throwing these bombs and, and Sugar Ray didn't give up. And he went the distance, went all the rounds, and by a split decision, won. Somebody rebuked me last hour and said, you know what, I don't care what the judges said. Marvelous Marvin Hagler won, but it doesn't matter. Sugar Ray went the distance. And as Christians, you know what? We're called to dance, duck, and weave, and fight. And we've already mortally wounded our flesh as Christ died on the cross to kill the old man in us. We are united in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So we're fighting a defeated foe, but don't underestimate this foe. This flesh is like a dragon inside of us that wants to eat us alive we have to fight we have to fight to grow if you're not growing it probably means you're not fighting john 15 says that jesus prunes back the branches he's the vine you have god the vine dresser and and god as the vine dresser is pruning back our fruit as we abide in him so that we can produce more fruit and fruit that will remain we're supposed to produce fruit in the christian life Let me give this as a way of sort of discouragement and encouragement, too, as sort of a prelude to the message. This fight's going to go on for your whole life. I'm going to talk about how we're supposed to mortify sin and what it's supposed to look like, but this is a fight to the end, and we're going to fight certain particular sins in our lifetime for our whole lifetime. Certain things are going to be natural sin categories that will crop up again and again, and we sort of have to live through this prize fight to the end we're called to do that we're called to be like paul i fought the good fight i finished the race and i kept the faith i didn't back down i stared it in the face and fought it but i want to at the same time encourage you with the fact that look if you're going man i see sin in my life and so i'm always questioning whether or not i'm a christian at all i want to encourage you that it could be that it probably is you're a christian who's a a, godly person who's just needing to fight a little bit harder in your Christian life to let some of the strength out of your flesh and you're not crazy if you think man why do I believe in Jesus and at the same time still do these sins well that's normal in the Christian life and I sort of want to lay the groundwork for you to be normal this morning but to also challenge you to be a more aggressive fighter and be more on the attack. Okay, so what does it mean specifically to mortify sin? It means to let the strength out of it. It means to poke some new fresh wounds in it every single day. We're not going to ultimately defeat it, but with God's help, we help it die throughout our Christian life. Philippians 3 is where Paul said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press for the mark, for the goal, to be like Jesus Christ, right? But he says, not that I've already attained it yet. We're not gonna attain perfection in this life. There are Christians who believe that, and that's not true. But we are supposed to inflict fresh wounds into our sin to let the lifeblood out of it, to manage it. This is how John Owen put it, and it's on your handout that's enormous, I. Understand that. I make no apologies for that. If you read the book and did what I did, you'd make a giant handout too. But here's the uh, quote on the screen as well. I love it. It's, a, it's an analogy of like sin being nailed to a cross and writhing there and dying. It says, as a, man nailed to, as a man nailed to the cross, he first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste His strivings are faint and seldom, his cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. Then he goes on, he says, when a man first sets on a lust, this is when he's attacking sin. When a man first sets on a lust to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But with by mortification the blood and spirits of it are let out. It moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard in the heart. It may have sometimes a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength. But it is quickly over, especially if it be kept from considerable success. That's the goal. That's what we're talking about. Draining the life out of the old man taking on habitual sins, habitual lusts that have been ignored and we let them go and we have to instead take them on. How do we do this? Well, what I learned from John Owen and what helped me inform these passages that say, hey, kill it. Okay, what do I do? You know, I used to read, okay, it says kill it. Now, what do I do? Well, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to think really hard and meditate really hard on scripture and in doing that you will begin to put to death the sin in your life i'm gonna call you we're diving into the deep end of the pool this morning just pretend we're in fairbanks we're diving into the deep end of the pool we're swimming down if you've ever done this down to the bottom and we're going to feel some pressure and that's really important to get down there if you're going to do some damage against your sin You've got to be willing to talk about and think about and meditate on some hard issues. And here's three categories. First of all, you have to think hard about your sin. A lot of churches want to talk about grace and grace changes everything. And I'm all about that and I love the grace of the gospel. But you've got to start with sin before you can really understand grace. If you want to deal with sin, you've got to name it biblically. You've got to understand what it is. You've got to understand the depth and ugliness of it. And you've got to be willing to think hard about sin and its implications. You've got to. If you want, it to, you want to deal with it, this is why a lot of people don't feel fixed in their life. It's why a lot of people turn to other solutions that the world offers is they won't just call it what it is and call it sin. That's where you've got to start. First of all, here's how you shouldn't think about sin how not to think about it I kind of want to do this there's some overlap in these categories the three categories by the way are these you got to think about sin you got to think about self and you got to think about God you got to think about your sin yourself and your God if you want to be mortifying sin and that's what the epistles call you to do these commands to kill sin are really sort of An action step to what all of a letter is talking about. All of Colossians, all of Romans is building this gospel picture about our sin, our self, and our God. And we've got to think hard about those categories in the context of all of the gospel to be mortifying the sin. First of all, here's what you're not supposed to do. You can't start out and say, I'm going to kill sin and, and say something like this. You know, I'm really okay. I'm really an okay guy really i'm i'm kind of you know on the sin spectrum on the gooder side you know you can't do that and that's what our desperately wicked Jeremiah 17 deceitful heart tells us to do i'm okay you're okay it's all good right i'm just in good company with David right the sinful lying adulterer king who God loved anyway and so i'm in good company with him so i'm not going to think about it it gets get you nowhere it'll get you nowhere you're not in the fight you're not you're on the bench you're not out in the battle okay if you're doing that you got to say i'm not okay you can't deceive yourself you can't say look this is a little isolated problem it's my own secret thing nobody knows about so i'm not going to talk about it with anybody i'm not going to seek any accountability i'm not going to come face to face with what the scripture says i'm doing wrong i'm not going to deal with it that will get you nowhere and that's where a lot of people are second You can't underestimate your serious sin problem. Don't underestimate the seriousness of sin. It's not a personality disorder. It's not a genetic issue. It's not something that happened to you. It's something you were born doing. You were born with a problem and you were born sinning. That's what the Bible says. And that's what our experience tells us if we're honest. We're not better off because we have a calmer temperament. You know, people who are even-keeled, they're not as sinful as the emotional people, right? Well, that's hogwash, right? I mean, we're all sinners. We're not better than other people. Even the worst manifestations of sin, like happened in Denver, we're sinners like him. We are. We deserved hell unless God intervened. We got to deal with that we got to understand that we have in seed form or in manifestation a sin problem we weaken our countenance we darken our countenance we muddy our thinking by feeding our flesh a lot of people say well look you know i've got this flesh issue and so i'll just feed feed my flesh a little bit i'll just scrape a little bit in the world and feed that flesh a little bit and that will keep it at bay wrong you feed the flesh that monster grows. Got to call it what it is. Owen, John Owen called it the sluggard's field, overgrown with weeds, clogged with lust. And it made David sick and weak. Remember that? Psalm 38.3, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. Psalm 32, when he was unrepented, unrepentant of lusting for, committing adultery with, and murdering the husband of Bathsheba. When he did all of those things, he said, My body is wasting away. you got to not underestimate the seriousness of sin. The impact it's having on others. The impact it's having on your spouse. Oh, but she doesn't know about it. Ah, but she feels the implications of it. The impact it's having on your children. The impact it's having on your community. The impact it's having on your God. As you grieve the Holy Spirit. Number three. You can't kill kill sin superficially. You say, well, I'm going to trade up. You know, I'll, I'll just, I'll kill this one, but oh, I'm going to leave this one in my back pocket. You can't do that. It's got to be a comprehensive, a universal approach. Where you're, you're saying, I'm willing to kill and stick a sword in any of these sins. Oh, I'm Abraham's child, the Jews said to Jesus. Jesus said, look, your child, your child. Your childhood is one where your father is the devil. You can't trade up. You can't use rational arguments and say, well, because I've gone to church, because I've been baptized, because I've taken communion, because I've listened to another long sermon, because I've given money, you know, I'm okay. You can't do that. Rational arguments are, are arguments to try to kill sin superficially. You know what you've got to do? You've got to hate sin. You've got to stare it in the eyes and say, you know what? I hate it. And you can't just hate it like in histrionics and in fits of anger about it. you got to really just choose that, yeah, I'm going to be kind of down on the enemy my whole life. hate what it does to me. I don't like it, and I hate it, and so I'm going to deal with it. And that's the first step in mortifying sin, how not to think. Now, here's how you're supposed to think about sin. Number one, you need to have faith to see the depth and ugliness of it. you got to approach sin by faith. Remember, those who are alive are the ones who can kill it. You got to see not just sin superficially. A lot of people see that. Unbelievers see that. You got to see sin through the eyes of faith where you see the sin beneath the sin. You say, "Yeah, you know, I have these outbursts of anger." Well, you got to see the pride underneath that. And that comes by putting on the Holy Spirit glasses where you look at your own heart and say, "Lord, and you know, you hate to pray this prayer. Lord, show me my pride." Because typically the way he answers it is he splashes it out in front of somebody else so that you're sure to see it. And you see the pride and you say, Lord, I want you to kill the weed, I mean the root of the weed and the weed. I want you to kill it all in all of its ugliness. Otherwise, we're just gonna kill it in the superficial way and it will just crop right up. You know, there are times where I've gotten sort of mad at my sins and mad at myself and I want to sort of create an intervention. You ever do that? You say, okay, no more. It's over. You know, tonight's the last time. You know, and never again. And you do this thing and it just, it just doesn't get it done. It's got to be that long-term commitment to say I'm thinking hard about this for a long time. John Owen talked about those kinds of expressions of dealing with sin like this he said it's like an enemy assassin going into the enemy's camp and killing you know sort of the chief in the camp and suddenly the different guards find out that that person's been assassinated and they, they get up get all crazy in histrionics and all the while the assassin has rolled over into the shadows waiting for things to calm down again and quiet down so he can make another kill there's nothing new under the sun You know, emotion and anger and sort of getting mad at your sin isn't going to kill it. you got to do it in faith. And you say, Lord, help me. Help me. In humble dependence, help me to see the depth of my sin. You need to see sin as lust. As something that is craving. A craving in your life. It's a habitual craving. James 1 talks about this, how sin, once it starts, it's sort of like opening the door and water pours through, and it's kind of unstoppable once it gets rolling. Now, we can kill it at the front door by shutting it, but sin, once it's perpetuating in your life, it will have an effect. What we sow, we will reap. If you sow in the flesh, you'll reap corruption, Galatians 6 says. So we've got to kill it at the root, go back to the door. You remember Abel and Cain and how Cain was tempted to kill Abel and God confronted Cain and said, sin is crouching at the door. In other words, repent of what's going on in your heart before you kill your brother. Before you have an outburst of anger at somebody, you've got to kill something at the door. So you've got to see that it's a lust. It begins at the level of craving. James 1, it talks about how temptations dance around us like a fishing lure. And I was, you know, I was reading in this book, and um, this guy, Chris Lungar, was talking about how really all hooks that, that catch fish are baited. And I said, well, you know, obviously he doesn't know Alaska, and the Kenai, right, where you bounce hook on, you snag a big sockeye salmon and pull it out. My 10-year-old did that, and it about dragged him into the water. He had to sit down every time he caught a 15- or 20-pound fish, So he doesn't know what he's talking about. No, but he does with uh, hooks in terms of generally you have bait on there, and that's what draws and attracts fish. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your lust addictions, your cravings, and say, Lord, help me to see that for what it is, and help me to understand that those lusts need to die. That's where it begins Number three, you need to commit to mortify sin as a lifelong fight. Now, we've talked about that quite a bit. This is the war in the soul. And again, I want to I just emphasize this. We're not going to kill it utterly and comprehensively. God will do that when he ultimately brings us to glory. When we die, it will be dead. And we'll be resurrected with a new body that's not feeling the effects of sin. But we got to be committed for the long haul. Number four, you need to be willing. Oh, I like this one. This one's really politically correct. We need to be willing to load our consciences with guilt. (gasps) Did he say that? Did he put that in print? Are you kidding me? Guilt? Yes. The Bible talks about guilt. It does. we got to be honest that guilt is not all bad. Now, false guilt is bad. Thinking wrongly about our guilt is bad. But our goal is not to puff ourselves up in this fight, but to be humbled first about our sin and feel bad about it. You need to feel bad, you need to feel good about the idea of feeling bad about your sin, you do. You do, you gotta gotta be open to that. The Bible says that we're called to humble ourselves, that there is, 2 Corinthians 7, a godly sorrow that's different than a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow feels bad that you got caught, feels bad that you don't feel good about yourself, feels bad that you're not getting what you think you deserve. That's the world's version of guilt that you're not supposed to have. But godly sorrow says, look, God, you're holy, and I'm not, and I've done wrong, and I wanna make it right It's where Paul said, look, I'm sorry I made you feel bad, but I'm really not sorry I made you feel bad because it was giving birth to a godly sorrow where you wanted to right the wrong that was going on. It's Zacchaeus that says, I'm going to pay him back threefold. It's where Luke, remember Luke's account of Peter, where Peter was trailing after Jesus, where Jesus was being scourged and being brought to the cross. And Peter was kind of that disciple who all of a sudden was not all in. He was a believer. His faith would not fail. But he was denying Christ three times and cursing about it and blaspheming Christ and, and sort of back in the shadows. And then there's this pointed moment in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 22:61, where it talks about how Christ and Peter's eyes met. They made eye contact. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. The cock crowed. He remembered that he was going to deny Christ three times. He said, I was, I'm not going to do it. And he did it. And then he began to deal with his sin. Listen, if you want to mortify your sin, if you want to really kill something in your life, then your eyes have to meet with Christ over your sin. And you got to feel that moment. And that's when mortifying begins. That's where you're beginning to kill it. You say, look, this category of my life is real. It's hurting me and it's hurting people. And Jesus, I need your grace because I see the depth of my sin. This is, this is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. This is our next point. You need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to do this. Only when you're alive will you see Christ by faith and see your sin. You'll see that you've hurt Christ. You'll see that you've grieved the Holy Spirit. You'll see that you applaud Satan. You'll see that you have your life and joy that's being sapped from you spirit alone is what convicts and convinces us of our sinfulness on a level that will do something about it i heard a preacher say one time how do you know if you really repented of something well are you still doing it there's your answer repenting is when you stop but it begins at the heart level by the convicting work of the holy spirit so you got to think hard about your sin and you got to pray god Open my eyes to it to see how ugly it is. John 16 8 says that the Spirit the Holy Spirit was given to convict the world of sin. It's where we see Christ on the cross, as Zechariah 12:10 says. That the Jews one day will look upon him whom they have pierced. It's remembering that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Let me talk about this from Galatians chapter 5 real quickly. It's a good principle that I found as I was meditating on Galatians 5. Really meditating through the mortification of sin by John Owen. That was a discipline of mortification throughout the week for me. And what he talked about is how you cannot have spiritual fruit going on in your life that's coexisting with the flesh. Spiritual fruit will not coexist with fleshly fruit. You won't produce both at the same time. So the key is to have the spiritual fruit in your life overwhelm the fruit of the flesh. Remember, verse 17, there's a war going on between the flesh and the spirit. And the spirit, by the way, it says that he desires to oppose the flesh. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So the Holy Spirit's on your side. He's coming alongside you. He wants to convict you of sin. He wants to show you the ugliness of it. And he wants you to depend on him and say, I'm going to walk by the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, the fruit of the flesh will be crowded out of your life. These things are evident. Verse 19, immorality, impurity, idolatry, etc. You can read jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions. Verse 21, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. If you don't care about this issue, then you might not be saved, it says. Those who don't care about these sin-lust patterns in their life, they won't inherit the kingdom of God because they're not the real thing. But for believers that care about this sin issue in their life, verse 22, you have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Says verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so what do you do? You walk by the spirit. Is that that a one-time thing? Like, bam, okay, you know, it's over. I dealt with this and I've named it, I've called it, I've rebuked it, I've cast it out of my life. No, there's no self-healing that goes on here. It's a yieldedness to God where you say, God, I need your mercy, I need your grace. Help me put one foot in front of the other and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And I yield myself over to you to produce the fruit of the Spirit. As the fruit of the Spirit is lived out in your life, what will happen is love for God will replace love for the world. You see that? The pride of your life will be replaced by humility and meekness and gentleness. They both can't live in the same house together. They won't. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe, what fellowship does light have with darkness? The answer is none. Light and darkness do not coexist. You know, Joseph in the Old Testament, I believe he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Do you remember that? He was given control of all of Potiphar's household. And in Genesis 39, 9, um, Potiphar's wife was coming after him, saw him as a good-looking guy, and she was lusting for him desperately. And day after day, she was saying, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And Joseph did two things. And this is, I believe, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit. He was willing to think hard about his sin and think hard about his God. He said, look, how can I? He did two things. He said, look, how can I do this wretched thing? First of all, he saw adultery. He saw fornication as ugly, wrong, and wretched. He called it for what it was. Biblically, he looked at it through spiritual eyes and said, that's wrong. I can't go there. And then secondly, he said, look, God has given me all these things. The only thing he hasn't given me is you. That's the only thing that's been withheld from me in God's grace in my life. So how can I do this sinful, this great evil against my God? It's walking in the spirit. That's mortifying sin. It's thinking hard. It's meditating hard about the ugliness of sin and meditating and thinking hard about your God. But let's look at this second category. The second category is think hard about yourself. You need to know yourself. The great sort of Chinese general of the ancient world, he talked about thinking about yourself And he said, you need to know your enemy and you need to know yourself. You gotta know yourself. There's there's an enemy that's after you. His name was, this general's name was Sun Wu. In the art of war, he said, know your enemy and know yourself. This is how you're not supposed to think about yourself, first of all. It's not mortification when you say, and this is some overlap here. When you say, I'm really not that bad. Again, you gotta start with the fact that you are, number two, it's not mortification when you believe with enough commitment and effort, I can correct my problems. Oh, you'd never do that, right? I mean, I've sat through sermons like these before sitting where you're sitting. And what happens in my mind is I begin to make sort of these campfire promises. You know, okay, Lord, I'm going to really do my devotions hard this week. Yes, Lord, I'm going to start praying. Okay, I've, you know, I'm already working my you know, weekly day timer and I'm slotting in hours to pray. Or Okay, I'm going to open up that journal right now, you know, and I'm going to start writing down you know, my prayers again. Is that how we're supposed to respond? We've got to be careful. This is not a call to duty. This is a call to desperation. It's a call to humility before your God and sanctification and growth. Again, as last week I talked about is a combined effort. You're going to war against your flesh with God against your flesh against your enemy. And so you can't make enough promises to God that will bring you to mortification. It's not doing more. It's not quick fixes or temporal corrections. Thirdly, it's not mortification when your main goal is to le- alleviate guilt or God's chastisement. I just want to sort of say this. I, I've thought about the chastening of the Lord, you know, for the last couple decades. And, you know, Hebrews chapter 12 talks about how God is a father, disciplines the ones he loves. And really, I don't, I don't know exactly when God is chastening me. And I don't really believe the Bible tells us that we're supposed to know when he's chastening us. You ever think that? You know, like, oh, is this chastening? Or is this just a trial? Remember Job, his whole life fell apart. That wasn't the chastening hand of God. John 9, the man was born blind, but you know it wasn't because of his sin. So we don't always know when rough things happen to us, whether that's chastening or whether that's just God's trial in our lives for us to grow. But the answer is the same no matter what. We shouldn't run out from under our trial or try to or run or try to escape the chastening hand of God, or to try to stop the chastening hand of God. Instead, we should embrace it and say, Lord, I know you're working on me no matter what. So we're not trying to get out of the guilt. We should be willing to say, Lord, I want to learn more about you and all of your holiness so I can feel more guilty about my sin and cling more to the cross for grace and relief. Period. Period you got to be open that way if you want to go into the battlefield. Again, I said I was going into the, the deep end of the pool. This is not, you know, how to win friends and influence people sermon. This is like, hey, are you going to come back next week's sermon? Because I, I want you to deal with your sin, and I want you to find relief, but you got to start with being brutally honest with yourself. You can't, number four, use mortification. you're not mortifying sin when you superficially apply God's word. You ever do that? okay I'm gonna go to my promise box and like find a promise and and just Lord make this make me feel better you know I need to give myself some peace and grace right now it doesn't work that way I've you know I've gone to passages like Isaiah 55 7 the Lord will have mercy and our God will abundantly pardon and we can say look I need that grace and pardon right now, but I'm also going to secretly hold on to this other sin and put it in my back pocket at the same time. That's hypocrisy. That doesn't work. It doesn't work. God is the one who is our yes and amen. He is the one who speaks to our heart and gives us peace when we are first honest with our sin, honest about it, and honest about ourselves. Yep. Here's how you're supposed to think about yourself. Number one, you will sacrifice God's power and peace without mortification. We've talked about that. Number two, you must become a practical expert on your sin. You need to be committed to learn your lust habits. What you do. When do you have anxiety? When do you have outbursts of anger? When, do you, when are you tempted to lust for other people? When do you feel sorry for yourself? When are you going away from God? And practically, it is important to use the discipline of journaling to write those things down and think about it. Go and become accountable with a trusted source, a trusted friend and talk to that person about your sin so that you can be accountable to think about it and grow. That's where you gotta start and that's where you'll get power and peace in your life. David, when he sinned, remember Psalm 51 verse three is where he was confessing his sin and he was repenting of falling prey to adultery. And he said in Psalm fifty one, verse three, My sin is ever before me. His repentance meant that he was willing to acknowledge his sin and have it close to him. He wasn't trying to ignore it, deny it, trade up for it throw it away, forget about it, talk himself out of it, rationalize about it, philosophize about it, just talk about grace, I don't want to talk about sin. He didn't take that posture. He said, no, God, I need your grace, and your, my sin is ever before me. I get it. And he dealt with it face to face. That's when you're mortifying. That's what Paul is commanding the church as believers to do. I think a lot of times we're, we're willing not willing to deal with it. Number three, you must regularly replace habitual sinful attitudes with godly attitudes. You know what this is? This is the put off and put on from Colossians and Galatians and Romans 13. Romans 13 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ like you're putting on a garment and make no provision for the flesh. It's the idea, look, don't feed your flesh, don't don't scoop it a little bit of the world to make it try to Calm down. Don't do that. Instead, reject it and be Christ. Remember, Paul said in Philippians 1 to live is Christ and to die is gain. You have to retrain your heart affections, what you love, and you have to say, Look, I am now committed to humility and I don't want to love my pride anymore. I, I want to replace it. I want to throw off pride and try to put on humility. I want to throw off anger and I want to put on patience. Remember, you want the Holy Spirit's fruit to overwhelm and crowd out the fruit of the flesh. You want to give up sensuality. Okay, Lord, forgive my sensuality, my desire for the flesh, and instead fill my heart with, with purity. Lord, let me not think like the world. Let me think heaven. Instead, Colossians 3, gaze up at Christ. All right, number four. You must inform your conscience with the Bible. Again, we've talked about this. Guilt is not always wrong. And guilt can be the grace of God in your life. Guilt is part of how God works in our conscience, right? Even the world has a conscience at some level. There are some sins in the world that the world is still shocked at, but not many. They were shocked at what happened at the movie theater, okay? But they're not shocked at the abortion clinics anymore. There is a conscience, though, and we as believers, of all people, need to inform our conscience with the Word of God. We have a sense of right and wrong in our hearts, but we have to inform it biblically. One of the best books I've read by John MacArthur is a book called The Vanishing Conscience, and I would recommend that book. It's not a very publicly or popularly known book, but it's a great book. And he gives this illustration about the conscience and how you can inform it. I actually read that book when I was dealing with, I think, you know, this issue of mortifying sin in my own life as a young Christian. And I, I didn't know whether or not my guilt was good or not. And I, the more I learned how to inform my own heart with the Bible, the better off I was. Sort of the overarching illustration from that book is this. It was the idea of a, a commercial airliner that crashed into a mountain because they ignored the warning signs. In 1984, the Ivanka Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box, that was the only thing that was found in the wreckage of the plane. Everybody died on the plane. The black box and the cockpit recorders Um, They revealed that several minutes before the impact of the plane going into the mountain, there was a shrill computer synthesized voice in the plane's automatic warning system that told the crew repeatedly, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of the mountain. Everyone on board died. We don't want to ignore our conscience. That's what God gave to us. But for us to rightly mortify sin, we have to think hard about these categories biblically in our own hearts. And as we do that, as we think about our sins, we think about ourselves, and we think about our God biblically, guess what happens? You are finding yourself fighting the battle and mortifying sin, you're draining the lifeblood out of your flesh. It's more nailed to the cross than it was before if you're willing to go these places, these hard places, biblically. Last category, quickly, is we need to think about our God. This is how you shouldn't think. You shouldn't think of God as um, unnecessary to mortify your sin. You shouldn't think of God as obligated to you because of your spiritual discipline. We kind of talked about that already. God is not the great genie in the sky where we rub the bottle by praying more or we rub the bottle by reading the Bible more, or we rub the bottle by giving more, or doing more, right? And then God's gonna bless our lives. That's not how God works. It's a relationship where he's taking us where we are through our sin habits and we're killing them progressively day by day, going to war with God on our side through the battle. How are you supposed to think about God? Number one, he's sufficient. He's enough. You know, when you really grapple with your sin, biblically, it's ugliness, and you really grapple with how wicked your own heart is, and then you see that God still wants you anyway, and he gave you grace anyway, and he adopted you anyway, and he saved you anyway, and he killed the old man anyway, and that old man is mortally wounded, and he's going to redeem you anyway, no matter what happens. When you start to see that happen in your own heart, in your own life, you understand the sufficiency of God in Christ. His grace is enough. That's where it overwhelms your heart with joy that you realize He wants you. And the Spirit wants to oppose your flesh. Apart from God, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Repentance is a gift of God. Here's a a recommendation. Again, it kind of connects with our bookstore. We got a book out there um, by A.W. Pink called The Attributes of God. It's a great book. If you've never read theology or again, swimming in the deep end of the pool, I would recommend, you know, whether you do it in a small book or a big book, that you begin to learn about your God. The church is sort of, it has emptied itself of a full knowledge of God. We talk about God as love. We talk about God's grace. Um, it's very trendy today in churches. Look, at the base, everything boils down to one thing, and that's love. That's all we're going to talk about, love. And people go, oh, thank you. It's so great, love. We don't have to talk about sin here. Man, I like this church, right? You know, that's not what we're about because we want the whole counsel of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. God can't look upon sin. Heaven is about holiness. Being a Christian is about wanting holiness. It's about being grieved over our sins and mortifying our sins and trusting in the grace of God to redeem us from our sins. And how great a salvation it is when we understand the full vision and picture of God. His ways are inscrutable and incredible and perfect. And God is almighty and infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It's taken from a catechism, but it's true. And Proverbs 30, verse 1 and 2 is where the... the, the Solomon said this, it's kind of humorous, he says, surely I'm too stupid to be a man. I mean, you know, it's, you got to come to the end of yourself and say, you know what, I don't really know God. I'm like Moses who said, you know, show me your glory and I'm not going to let you go until you do. And God put him in the cleft of the rock to protect him as he passed by. And all Moses could see was his backside, right, to protect him. Because if we really saw God without the protection of the cross, we would be gone destroyed forever and yes we've had the lights turned on because of the gospel and we do know god more clearly because of the face of christ but we dare not become proud in this we need to be willing to meditate upon a god who is a consuming fire who fills our heart with awful fear right because when you do that that's where you our mortifying sin—it's God's prerogative to speak peace to our hearts. It's not something we give to ourselves. We're not our own faith healers. We're not um, the ones who gives grace who give grace to our hearts. God does. We kill sin by faith in the gospel. We find relief in the cross alone. We realize that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is more than conquering your sin? that you are victorious in Christ, you should. You should. We should, number five, expect relief from Christ. The gospel is not a gospel of gloom and doom. We just have to start with our sins, start with our problem, and, then, and there's no greater motivation in the Christian life than to realize that the Holy Spirit of God wants to meet you right where you are, and God in Christ, as your faithful high priest, wants to shepherd your soul, and you need to expect it. John Owen said a beggar, he, he lays in the right place where people will actually give money and alms to him and he expects it. And that's how we need to be. Now here's my last point. My last point is this. And I stole this from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a great book called Spiritual Depression. And he basically said this. You need to talk to yourself, not listen to yourself. Your heart's going to condemn you. You're going to have all kinds of unbiblical thoughts condemn you and curse you and drag you down but ultimately you have to use the word of God to say yes I know my sin is ugly I know I have a bent towards certain sins I know I go places or think places that I shouldn't think but Lord give me the grace and mercy of the cross and you need to say look when I'm tempted to go in a certain direction this is what I do I go that's not who I am Right? When you have that out of body experience and you see yourself and you go, that's ugly, you need to be able to talk to yourself and say, No, I am a Christian. I'm a blood bought child of the king. Amen? That's what you got to tell yourself. Talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Tell yourself the gospel every day of your life and you'll find grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and it has.